Welcome to the Places Where We Go podcast. Hello, I'm Julie. And I'm Art. We're the hosts of the Places Where We Go podcast. Join us as we share our travel stories. We'll tell you about where we've been, what we saw, and what we did. We're always looking for a bit of an adventure. Sometimes we travel far. Sometimes we explore the places in our own local backyard. Wherever we go, we'll let you know about the highlights and top tips to help you plan your future adventures. This is the Places Where We Go podcast. Hello, and thanks for joining us. And for today's episode, we would invite you to have a seat, pour yourself your favorite Irish beer, Irish whiskey, and join us as we continue our tour through the top 10 things to do in Dublin, Ireland. We started last time with items one through three, and we're going to resume today on our number four item. And today's theme is going to center around drinking and eating, two of our Mm. favorite things. Before we actually dive into the drinking, I was thinking about traveling to Ireland in general and the way it turned out I think mainly for you you know I think about people going from the United States and the first time to Europe yeah I think a nice way to ease into traveling in Europe and being on a different continent is actually to first visit one of the countries in the British Isles be it Ireland Uh England Wales or Scotland because while you're in a different country, you're in a different continent, you're also still immersed in the English language. Yeah. So, and I think that makes it easy versus I think about, and, and you can maybe let me know what this was like for you, if you otherwise go to a place like Poland, where you don't have English words as much on shops, on menus, on whatever, I think it could be a little more disorienting, yeah? Very disorienting. And if you didn't have somebody who spoke the language, it would even be more so. I was fortunate enough to have you with me who understands the language and your mother Mm -hmm. who is fluent in the language. So that eased me in quite comfortably, I thought. If you weren't with somebody that spoke the language, I think it would be very, very difficult. Yeah. So while in Ireland, you know, the the main language you're going to run across is English. If you do want a taste of a foreign language, there is Gaelic signage still scattered here and there. And I remember a night or two in the hotel room flipping on the TV and they even had a few TV stations that were entirely in Gaelic. And I remember watching that for a few minutes just to... uh, experience the Gaelic. Yeah, and it was kind of fun to just go walk around the city and you had English names and then Gaelic names uh-huh. for the street signs and some of the other labeling. So it was kind of fun to see the uh, both the languages up yeah. in, the, in the city. Yeah, I like that. So talking about walking around the streets, our, I think this was the first day that we were in Dublin. We were walking on the streets and on that initial walk exploring the town, We came across a sign that pointed to the old Jameson Distillery tour and whiskey tastings, 100 meters this way, and off we went, because that sounded like a phenomenal thing to do. So this actually turned out to be an item on the itinerary that we planned, but having seen the sign that showed us the way, and being the first time in this new country and not knowing the streets, we were rejoicing that we found our way (laughs) To the yeah, because we were having a little trouble finding it. Mm-hmm. So we were kind of wandering around the streets. We knew we were in the right direction, 
but we're having trouble finding the distillery itself being unfamiliar with the city mm-hmm. so when we saw that sign we're like ha there it is so off we went to the jameson distillery bow street location which is an Irish whiskey tourist attraction in Dublin. It's the original site where Jameson Irish whiskey was distilled until 1971. Today, this location is a visitor center that provides guided tours, whiskey tastings, there's a bar and a gift shop. And we Mm -hmm. stopped in and took advantage of the tour, which was kind of neat. I think that might've been our very first distillery that we ever attended. I memory, you're right. Yeah. So it was neat to see an overview of the whiskey making process. We saw their mash tons, the stills, the barrels that are used for aging. And they'll tell you about the uniqueness of the triple distilling process. That is how they distill Jameson whiskey. So different than how many whiskeys in America are distilled as well as those in Scotland. So it makes for a very smooth drink. And um, one of the things that we were able to participate in is when we were there, they had these whiskey tastings where they selected a few members who were on the tour. On the tour group. It wasn't a lot of people, but... Yeah, but not everybody got to taste right, when we were, right. were there. And and I think that might be different today. I think today they may have like tastings for everybody. Hmm. I'm not okay. 100% sure. I think when I went to the website, I saw something that made it sound like that. So if that's the case, it'd be a different experience if you go tomorrow. But for our experience, you were one of the lucky chosen. I was. So off to the uh, table in the front of the room, I went and a lovely hostess from Jamieson Distillery poured us three different whiskeys to sample. So there was a Jack Daniels from the United States. Mm -hmm. There was, I think it was a Johnny Walker Red or black, one of the two from Scotland. And then the third was the Jameson. Mm -hmm. And this experience haunts me to this day (laughs) because on the one hand, I was, you know, happy to be able to sample three different whiskeys. I love whiskey. But then the question came, which whiskey is, do you feel is the best? And, And two others went before you. Yes. And they said, well, I think it's, number whatever number they picked Mm -hmm. and the hostess was quite pleased with their answer i know my whiskeys so so (laughs) i knew exactly which one was the jack daniels which was the scotch whiskey and which was the irish so she phrased the question which one do you think is the best and i have a tendency to I guess like George Washington, cannot tell a lie. I try to be truthful when when asked questions. And I (laughs) gave the answer that turned out to be the Scotch whiskey because to me that was indeed the best. Now, had she asked me which whiskey was the smoothest, I would have in a heartbeat pointed to the Jameson. Because I did not select the Jameson as the answer to which is the best whiskey. I just, to this day, I feel bad. I feel that, you know, I I got hosted well by the folks at Jameson. They invited me to a whiskey tasting. They poured me their whiskey and I spat upon them. I spat upon them (laughs) and I'm sorry. (laughs) And if I go back to Dublin again, and if I get a chance to taste the whiskeys there again, I will give the appropriate answer. And so when you go there and if you taste their whiskey, and even if you like one of the other ones better, 
be a generous guest, be a respectable guest, and tell them that Jameson has just knocked your socks off. <laughs> and they'll, they'll love you for that. It is a good whiskey. Yes. The one that they pour there is their run-of-the-mill Jameson. In the years since we've gone to this distillery, I've had a few other other kind of specialty whiskeys that they sell. They've got one I remember that was finished in, I think, stout barrels or like some mm, specialty mm, yeah, barrels. Yeah. That's just a phenomenal, beautiful Irish whiskey. So they do make several varieties. And they are all very smooth. A little bit of history about Jameson. The original distillery on the site was called the Bow Street Distillery, and it began operations way back in 1780. A few years after that, Mr. John Jameson took full ownership, and he expanded the distillery in 1805. And just five years later, the operation was officially renamed to John Jameson and Sons Bow Street Distillery. That's and a mouthful. It is a mouthful, and it grew up to five acres in size by 1886, so they uh, expanded to a very large footprint, and at one point in time, it became known as a city within a city, as the distillery also housed a smithy. They had a cooperage, and those are the um, the wood barrels for maturing the whiskey. Yeah, mash pots and all mm-hmm. those kind of things. They had sawmills, engineers, carpenters, painters, coppersmith shops you know an entire operation the water from the distillery came from wells that were dug beneath the site so local water and cellars were also dug underneath nearby streets and that's where they would store the maturing whiskey so a huge operation that was successful for a long long time but then they entered a difficult period around the time of american prohibition so not the friendliest of times to makers of whiskeys and alcoholic libations. And there was also Ireland's trade war with Great Britain. And then the Scotch started to introduce their blended whiskey, which took off like wildfire. And the Jameson Distillery fell on hard times. And ultimately they decided to form the Irish Distillers Group with their previous rivals, the Cork Distilleries Company and John Power and Sons in 1966. And eventually this location that we were at became one of the last distilleries in Ireland to close, which was in 1971. And after that, the Jameson operation was moved out of the Dublin area and to the new Middleton distillery in Ireland. So you can still go to the site of the original distillery today. They do host a nice tour, whiskey tastings. And we had a pretty good time there. Mm-hmm. So we had a great time. that's our number four thing to do when you're in Dublin. Well, let's continue with the drinking theme. Let's and do move that. on to number five, which is one of Dublin's most popular attraction. It is the Guinness Storehouse. The history of Guinness began just as Jameson very, very early on, about the mid 1700s. The water in Ireland as was in Europe, was very dangerous to drink. So you hear very often of waters that are toxic or poisonous, and they have to use an alternative drink. Mm -hmm. So because of problems with the water and the diseases that came from it, Christians like Arthur Guinness, as well as some monks and some evangelical peoples, would brew beer to provide healthier drink or healthier alternative to these poisonous waters. And... Apparently, I guess the alcohol killed the germies, huh? 
That's what they think. Yeah. And it, but it is true that alcohol does kill germs. Yeah. I know particularly that whiskey does. Yeah, so I'm, I, sure I, about beer, I'm a fan of a drink a day. Yeah. So that's my motto. This is about where Guinness began with problems that were within Europe and within Ireland. They needed an alternative to something to drink that wouldn't kill them. So now Guinness is huge, though. It's a huge, huge brewery that exports Guinness beer all over the world. Mm-hmm. It's just completely global it's a very very well-known brand so you know good for them but we began our journey looking for the guinness storehouse and again it was a walking journey and we knew about where it was Mm -hmm. um, so we took off in that direction and we had passed several things along the way including like sidewalk sculptures and these beautiful churches and we've passed a polish church which was really cool Mm -hmm. we Finally came upon, there's a placard on the wall. I think it was one of those blue circles. Like we saw in England? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. I'm pretty sure. Okay. I didn't even realize that. Yeah. But it was the home of Arthur Guinness. So we, and this is the first thing we came upon. So we knew we had to be close. Yeah. Somewhere around there was the Guinness storehouse. And we continued walking. I remember we continued walking. I think we stopped for some food along the way too. Mm-hmm. A little cafe. A little cafe and we had some scones and... And then we came to the storehouse and this massive, massive gateway. Yeah, it was. The building was massive. I couldn't believe how big it was. Yeah, You could tell it was old. It was from brick. It was so tall. It was several stories high. And it had this beautiful gateway into the storehouse area, which was called the St. James Gate Brewery. Yeah. And we walked up. I remember there was like a carriage in the front with you know horses horse pulling it so that was yeah. kind of a cool thing to see and and i think to this day because we have been to multiple breweries in our travels both domestically and overseas and i don't know that we've ever seen a larger facility than what we saw at guinness yeah it's just it was, enor- it was enormous massive. yeah it's just so huge so a little bit about arthur he originally and the storehouse mm-hmm. he originally leased the storehouse In 1759, at 45 pounds per year for 9,000 years. This is an incredible businessman. If you want to talk about the art of the deal, (laughs) that is the deal of all deals. That is absolutely wonderful. And I believe this contract uh, is in place as of today, right? Or was there some modification i think there was a modification so i'm not entirely sure i think in some recent reading i think i did read about a modification i know that the guinness folk have been um philanthropic Mm -hmm. with their Mm -hmm. profits and Mm -hmm. with their success so i don't think they're stiffing it to somebody for just 45 pounds a year yeah, I'm not 100% sure of the arrangement you know, anymore. You know, I think I think you are correct because I believe within the storehouse when we took the tour, there is information on when Guinness first started. And I believe it said somewhere in there that there was some kind of modification. Mm-hmm. But what a deal, though. Yep, back in the day. So this has been the home of the Guinness storehouse ever since, which is quite amazing also to have started so far back and still have the original building that you're working in. That's pretty neat, too. It became the largest brewery in Ireland in 1838 and the largest in the world by 1886. 
it had an annual output of 1.2 million barrels. That's a lot of beer. That is tons of beer. Although they no longer are the largest brewery, it still remains the largest brewer of stout, Mm -hmm. which is... One of our favorites. Yes, which is one of our favorites. So let me ask you this. I'm just going to jump in for a second. Do you remember the first time you ever drank a Guinness? Oh, I was pretty young. Yeah? Yeah. Okay, because the first time I ever had a Guinness was we visited my brother when he was living in Oak Park. So we would have been in the beginning part of our marriage. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that's kind of just situating when it was. But I had never tasted Guinness. I think I probably had heard about it. And I remember he poured me this Guinness. It looked different. So mm-hmm. here's this black concoction, very mm-hmm. dark concoction with this foamy, creamy head. And I remember taking a sip and my brain was telling me, okay, this isn't what beer is supposed to taste like. And um, I didn't know what to make of it because it didn't taste like any other beer I had ever had in my life. Uh I remember I I drank it and I think I walked away from my first Guinness with a big question mark in my head. And it took me, I think a while after that to develop a taste for it. But today it's one of my go-to beers. Like if we go out for a meal, veggie burgers or whatever and if there's a guinness on the menu Mm -hmm. i think more often than not i'll end up getting that and i think this surprises a lot of people because it's a dark beer and i think people usually associate dark beers with heavy alcoholic beers it's not heavy at all yeah it's in the fairly low Mm -hmm. alcohol by volume Mm -hmm. ratio but it's different today many years later i enjoy it and by the time we went to ireland i think i had uh, acquired the taste for guinness so yeah My, my dad was not a he was not persnickety about his beers. He would... He probably had his go-to beers. There was times in our lives where it was Budweiser and Coors. That was it. That's all he would drink. But he would step out of his little box. Once and, in a while? Once in a while and, and uh, have something different. Usually it would be offered to him. Okay. We didn't but, have a lot of beer in my family growing up. I mean, oh, it was, we swam in beer at our house. Well, I know you, yeah. you all did. Mm-hmm. And literally swam yeah. in beer just about. <laughs> yeah, for in my household, it was maybe like a once a year special treat type of thing. But mm-hmm. I do remember as a child, there were occasional nights when my mom would be out maybe with one of her friends and my dad was at home Thursday night, the boxing matches would come on. Oh, is that when the beer would come out? And the Schlitz would come out. Ooh. <laughs> which I don't even, what they called it Schlitz malt liquor. So I don't yep. even know if that's technically a beer, some yeah. kind of weird stuff. And then as a young initial beer drinker, you know, my first acquaintance with beer was along the lines of Bud, Coors, and Miller, all of which I thought were just atrocious. And, Even then? Oh, yeah. I, I didn't think so then. Oh, I, I couldn't stand it. I mean, I drank them. I did it because everybody else was doing it. Yeah, so. but remember, we went to Colorado and we went to the Coors mm-hmm. Brewery. And uh, actually, we enjoyed that because I, I did. there were some different beers there. Yeah. We weren't. But yeah, I mean, through the years, you know, I've been on, I've had the opportunity now to probably have had tasted hundreds of beers. But I think when a lot of people get started, you, you most people probably start on the very cheap um loggers yeah which go down a certain way and then i remember once having a heineken and i thought "Hmm, oh yeah yeah. okay this is a little more interesting i think i like i can like this yeah and then um 
in the early, early days of the Boston Beer Company, when they came out with Sam Adams, I had a Sam Adams. Mm-hmm. That was probably my first, wow, mm-hmm. this, okay, th- this is very different than Bud and Coors and all the other stuff. I'm, Corona. Yeah, so, oh my gosh, don't get me started <laughs> on Corona. Okay. <laughs> I, I can't. I can't do Corona. I never could do Corona. Yeah. It just, not, yeah. So no offense if you like that stuff, you know, yeah. different strokes for different folks. But um, but since then, today, 95% of the time, I'm grabbing a, a dark beer, a stout variety. Mm-hmm. So anyways, I digress. That's okay. So we had bought tickets for a tour of the storehouse and the museum there. And we went in and we saw things about the beer making process. And we had a really nice tour guide. I remember him specifically because I thought he was very good at what he did. There was some good explanations. They had a pretty cool video that was like decades old showing the Coopers making the barrels. Mm -hmm. And that was phenomenal to watch Mm -hmm. because this was a video of handmade barrels and so you know guys going at it with some kind of implements but they weren't made by machines it's all by hand and this is a skill you know i know people apprentice for years and years to become coopers you know Mm -hmm. real coopers Mm -hmm. they showed us that in uh how it's actually done and that was cool yeah and there was a lot of things that they when they were explaining the beer process that was interesting to me and the glass cases that had all the hops in it Mm -hmm. and it's just an incredible process to me because when you look at what they start with and what the end result is, it kind of knocks me off my socks. Yeah. It's like, wow. I mean, we have through the years been on tours and lots of different breweries. And I mean, to this day, the one that sticks out for me, the most impressive was the Guinness. the Guinness. It was such a huge facility. The tour was extensive. So we saw a lot of things. We read a lot of things. We saw a lot of antiquities from the past and different times yeah they've done a nice job Guinness has gone through yeah preserving their history yeah Yeah. it was really nice yeah really enjoyed it and um but then we we ended up up, we kept going up we got went up a elevator up and up and up and we went to the very top to the overview of Dublin Mm -hmm. and it was all it was one big room in the with a bar in it in the round and it had glass walls on every side and it was just absolutely gorgeous yeah it was because you could see all of dublin i mean Mm -hmm. you could see it just out those windows that's got to be one of the best views of the city in its entirety i would imagine in the city yeah you were a little nervous though i remember you were nervous you didn't get too close to the glass yeah i don't remember how high it was i don't think it was that was it very high oh it was very high well, maybe a, yeah. maybe a beer would calm me down. <laughs> <laughs> and part of the tour is they allow you to pour a pint. They not only allow you, they coach you. Yes, they yes. show you how it's done, and then they allow each person to pour their own pint. The perfect pint. Yes, and yes. it was awesome. Yes, so there's a whole process of yes. how you pour a Guinness correctly. Mm-hmm. And we both had a chance to do that, and we got certificates, our diplomas. We did good. Yes. We did. we done good we're, job. We're certified Guinness pourers yeah. of beer. And then we sat down and we drank our beer. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was just a really, it was a nice tour, fun time. Yeah. I highly recommend that you ever in Dublin, please go to that, uh, yeah. uh, the Guinness storehouse, because it is amazing. Yeah. And then you end with the gift shop, of course, and there's lots of wonderful things you can get at the gift shop. Mm-hmm. All right, how about some Guinness fun facts? What do you got? There are 10 million pints 
of Guinness produced daily in Dublin. It just keeps on coming. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Consumers drink 2 billion pints of Guinness each year. And we contribute to that consumption. Yes, we do. I just just finished my last one. You have to get me some more. During World War II, the British Army asked Guinness to set aside 5% of its beer solely for its troops. And of course they did. They're very generous that way. Another fun fact is Africans drink more than one-third of all the Guinness produced globally. I didn't know that. I, that's the first time I remember reading yeah, that. Popular drink in the continent of Africa. Yeah, it's a very smooth beer. It's very refreshing. If you've never so. had a Guinness, and if you drink beer, or if you don't mind a beer now and then, you have to try it because it is so different, and it's also just one of these iconic beers and if you're ever in dublin you have to have an irish stout Mm -hmm. and there's a few i think murphy's Murphy's also makes irish Mm -hmm. stout but guinness is when you think of irish stout guinness is it yeah yeah and then of course the the guinness family themselves were great pioneers of corporate social responsibility so they took care of their workers gave them very good benefits and they were concerned about the poor mm-hmm. and they helped fund many programs and things within Ireland to help the poor people. So good for them. Yep. I also learned one other interesting factoid that really surprised me given where Ireland is situated, but it's that St. James Gate in Dublin was traditionally a starting point for Irish pilgrims to begin their journey on the Camino de Santiago otherwise known as the Way of St. James. So Mm -hmm. many of you may have heard about this famous walk that typically traverses the majority of the country of Spain. But there's starting points throughout the European continent. We had even seen when we were in Poland, there was the clamshells Mm -hmm. on some trees, and there's even a pathway that connects to the Camino Mm -hmm. Santiago Mm -hmm. as far away as in Poland. But in Ireland, pilgrims would have their passports stamped at St. James Gate before setting sail, and they would go to a place called A Coruña, which is north of Santiago, and then continue their Camino de Santiago once landing on the Spanish soil. And it's still possible for Irish pilgrims to get these traditional documents stamped both at the Guinness Storehouse as well as at St. James Church. So if you're so inclined to experience the Camino and have Ireland as your starting point. That's a thing you can do. I didn't know that. And mm-hmm. now that's I do. Pretty, that's pretty neat. And the Camino is something that continues to be on our bucket list. It is. And We've got to get to it soon though. We may be getting to it sooner than mm-hmm. you otherwise think. Alrighty. So stay tuned for that one. Okay. So the cost uh, for the Guinness undercover experience is about 30 euro. It'll give you a tour of the history of the Guinness story. You'll learn to pour that perfect pint There's a guaranteed time entrance and 60 minutes with a beer specialist with whom you can sample beers. All right. So that's pretty good for 30 euros. So that's Guinness Storehouse is number five on our list of things to do in Ireland. And moving on to number six, we're going to end today with the pub scene and Temple Bar. So this is the party zone on the south bank of the River Liffey. It's promoted as Dublin's cultural quarter. And it is a center of Dublin's city nightlife. 
and a huge tourist destination. Mm -hmm. So Temple Bar is where you're going to find restaurants, nightclubs, and bars. The streets in this area, they're more on the narrow side. You've got cobblestone yeah. streets. It's got that, um, when I think about old Europe, kind of that quaint Europe feel, that's what and I remember in, in Temple yeah. Bar. There's little car traffic. I think on some of the streets, there's no car traffic. So it's mm -hmm. a nice place to walk around. You'll find buskers and street performers in the area. There's live music at many of the pubs. We heard much of that walking yeah. through the streets. So when we went to Temple Bar, we ended up in one of the pubs because it's like one of the things you have to experience. Mm -hmm. And we were lucky to find a place where there was in the corner, there was just a group of musicians playing mm -hmm. traditional sounding Irish music. So we sat there, we enjoyed an Irish stout, listened to the music, had mm -hmm. something to eat. And I think when we were trying to find a place to eat, we may have been looking for box tea, which is a kind of a potato pancake. But I've learned since our trip that box tea apparently isn't a super common menu item in ireland well we found that out when we were trying to look for it because we had trouble finding yeah. it yeah but back in the day i remember the first time i ever ate box tea i was on a trip in san diego and there was a little irish bar in the gas lamp quarter of san diego and i think i was there with some work people but had a box tea and it was like on this Irish menu. So I'm assuming it's a traditional oh, Irish okay. food and I really enjoyed it. So I was really looking forward to, Hey, when we're in Ireland, I got to find some box tea mm -hmm. and we looked and uh, difficulty finding it. And just, you know, recently I was looking at some TripAdvisor reviews of restaurants in Dublin. And one that I came across said that you can find reviews for the box tea house on TripAdvisor we found the comment in one review that you can find better box tea in San Diego than Dublin amusing. Chances are that there's more box tea eaten in San Diego than in Dublin. Oh, and when I saw that comment, I thought, oh, wow, was I the person that wrote that? <laughs> because I probably have written about eating box tea in San Diego. Uh -huh. That probably wasn't me. And so box tea is an interesting food. I do enjoy it. I know you can find it but i think you have to hunt kind of harder yeah. for it in dublin and you also learn that there's it's not as common for restaurants in dublin to specialize in serving what's going to be considered traditional irish food and when the locals go out to eat they actually prefer more ethnic foods international cuisines versus the kind of food that they're most likely to cook at home yeah that's that sounds yeah. like common sense yeah but yeah. pubs are one of the places that you're going to be more likely to find Irish staples. So things like Irish stews, fish and chips, salmon, oysters, beer and Guinness casserole, soda bread, the full Irish breakfast, corned beef and cabbage. The pub scene is where you may find more of that than your uh, run-of-the-mill restaurants. Speaking of pubs, they're everywhere in Ireland. Yeah, like you would think so too, right? Yeah. The city of Dublin itself contains over 650 licensed pubs, and the legal drinking age in Ireland is 18. We had heard, or you had heard, mm -hmm. of a pub called the Brazen Head Inn. It's the oldest pub in Ireland. That's their claim. There's a hand-painted sign that declares that the date of the establishment was 1,198 which is hard to imagine that there was an actual pub there, but okay. That's their claim. I have no reason not to believe it. 
And in the 1600s, the only bridge crossing the River Liffey led directly to Bridge Street, which is where the Brazen Head Inn is located, assuring that the inn had continuous patronage. So they had a perfect piece of real estate there to make sure that anybody crossing that bridge saw them first. There are some famous people that visited the Brazen Head, including one of my favorite people, actually, Sir Winston Churchill, as well as some insurrectionists in the 1916 War of Independence. And that included the famous Michael Collins, Mm -hmm. which he was one of the leaders of that revolution. And it was also extensively restored as early as 1988. Still has that very, very old feeling to it, old look to it. Because we, we, you know, when we walked in, the first thing I thought was, man, these doors are really short. Yeah. You felt like you're going to yeah. hit your head on the, on the top of the door. Yeah. I just remember we were in there having, I think, both food and drink. And it just... Yeah. You know, while they say that the place has this history going back to 1198, when you're sitting in there, you can believe it because it just, it has such an old sense. Yes, it has a tightness to it, but I mean, not a tightness in a bad way. It's because way back in those times, people were smaller. Mm -hmm. So now when you walk in there, you feel like it just feels little. Cozy. It's very cozy. Yeah, cozy with your Irish Very nice. They have great food there. There's a bar there. They have entertainment there. It was really fun. We we really had a good time. Yeah. If you like historic places, the Brazen Head should be on your list if you go to Dublin. Because Mm -hmm. how often do you go to a place that claims a history as far back as the 1100s? That's the first one I've ever been in or have been since. Yeah. So speaking about food, which uh, we've been kind of touching on a little bit, I do remember... When we were staying in Dublin, and you mentioned on the last episode, we stayed at a place called Clontarf Castle. Mm -hmm. And the last morning that we were there, we had ordered, I I think what they called like this full Irish breakfast. Mm -hmm. So it was the works. So we figured, hey, when in Dublin, why not go all out and have this breakfast? And um, I remember on the one hand, there was a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. There was even... And I didn't know what it was at the time, but I think there was like blood sausage. It was blood sausage. On the plate. And we were... We were in Ireland and we were like there for the... We want to experience everything about Ireland. But but at the time we were vegetarians. Oh, yes. So we didn't eat meat nor fish Mm -hmm. nor... It was just we were vegetarians. And there was that blood sausage thing on my plate. I didn't know what it was. Mm -hmm. And I remember... We questioned it though. I sampled it. And then yeah. learned later what it was. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that I'd eat it again. But we I did, wouldn't because it did, was bad. Yeah. I didn't like it. Okay. We had a sample of everything. Yeah. But the other thing I remember the, about that breakfast is to this day, that was the most expensive breakfast we've ever had in our lives. I think mm-hmm. we walked out of there and we must have paid for breakfast for the two of us somewhere in the tune of 70 to 80 bucks. Mm-hmm. I remember the bill came and I, I, I kind mm-hmm. of almost fell out of my chair. Mm-hmm. But... Again, I guess we'll put it under the category of (laughs) we were on vacation. It was an experience, breakfast in a castle, the full Irish thing. Mm -hmm. So just know you've got all kinds of different price points Mm -hmm. available to you in Dublin. A few more fun facts. In the Temple Bar area, about 900 AD, the Vikings loved the Temple Bar 
and set up their base camp there. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole Viking history mm-hmm. in Ireland. Ireland yeah. Some of it not pleasant. Many places the Vikings went, it was not pleasant. Yes. yes. No offense to people no with offense, Viking lineage. They were fighters. Yes, they were. <laughs> the origin of the name Dublin, it comes from an early Irish word referring to dark black tidal pool. And the tidal pool was located where the river Podal entered the Liffey. On the side of the castle gardens at the rear of the Dublin Castle. So another place that I would recommend going to, we never got a chance to. That's the one place I wish I had seen. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. During the Viking times, it was a lake and the Vikings would come and moor their um, ships so they could trade. And this was also connected to the Liffey. So the Liffey's the one of the larger rivers that run through Dublin. So it was quite a, it was a source for travel and for trade. Mm-hmm. So that's going to wrap up our three more things to do in Dublin. So the Jameson Distillery, the Guinness Storehouse, and as many pubs as you can get yourself into. Next time we get together, we're going to continue on item number seven and beyond that we have for you for things to do in Dublin. But before we leave, one thing that I want to point out, so we're recording this again, it's, you know, COVID time. And I think for a lot of people, they're not thinking about travel and vacations or making plans to do so in the future. But I was having a conversation with a coworker of mine earlier this week who was making plans himself to go to one of our national parks in the United States in the summer of 2021. And he was mentioning to me how he was surprised that on the one hand, he was making his arrangements six months out, but it turns out that where he's going, they start taking reservations as early as 13 months out. And so he was having a real difficult time finding lodging. So as we sit here today, it's like close to the end of 2020, you can actually be starting to think about vacation plans that you can start to be making for the year 2022. Because there are lots of places where you do have to have your plans start to take shape even more than one year out. So while we're in this very peculiar time, I think most of us hopefully are optimistic that by the time we get to the year 2022, things will start to get closer to normal, you know, much more so than they are now. And if you're interested in going to a place you've always dreamed of, it might be Ireland, it might be one of the national parks in our country or elsewhere, don't wait till the last minute to make your plans and your reservations. You know, think about it in advance. And if you can't travel today, you can at least start to plan for your future travels today. So we hope that in the course of our show, we give you ideas about places that you might think about going to. And if on this or our recent episodes or prior episodes, you've heard about something that sounds interesting, take the time to check it out and uh, think about when you might go. It might be at the end of 2021, maybe in 2022, but you can always start planning for that future trip today. So we'll say bye for now until our next episode, which takes us back into Dublin. So for now, thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the places where we go. If you have any comments or info to share with us about travel, you can write us at comments at theplaceswherewego.com. You can also follow us on social media. Right now we're on Twitter and Instagram, both at 
the places where we go. Thanks for joining us, and we hope to see you at the places where we go. See you next time. Bye now.